Here's the story of two dental hygienists from opposite sides of the world who became friends because they realized their professional lives were so in sync. One in Australia and one in America, both exuding their high passion for high-level patient care, both pushing back on legacy dentistry. If you are ready to revolutionize the practice of dental hygiene through science and innovation, join us as we are Disrupting Dentistry. Hello, and welcome to the Disrupting Dentistry podcast. Uh, Before we get started, I just want to let you know that we're doing a bit of a different episode today. This is the first time Tabitha and I are recording since March, and um, this episode is very important, and uh, we wanted to share with our audience ways that we can raise awareness on a very, very serious issue. So um, I just want to let you know, this is a trigger warning to please be aware that today's episode will discuss violence and sexual violence against women. This episode may cause distress for some listeners as we discuss the domestic violence globally and how dental health professionals can take part in helping victims of domestic violence. We will discuss violence and death of loved ones in this episode. So listeners, please look after yourself during this episode. If something is too much for you, please press pause and um, you know, it's okay. Um, just a little disclaimer before we start as well. As many of you are aware, unfortunately, I lost my little girl in March and um, to domestic violence. And Mackenzie's case is ongoing and we won't be discussing aspects of her case today. Um, in this episode, because it is an open case, but we will be discussing um, some other things because we're we're really trying to um, highlight what is going on around the globe and this fight to save our kids' lives. So um, before we even dig into this, I just want to take a moment to commend my friend's strength and courage to be able to do this. Globally, violence against women, particularly intimate partner violence and sexual violence is a major public health problem and a violation of women's human rights. Estimates published by WHO indicate that women globally, about one out of three women worldwide, have been subjected to either physical or sexual intimate partner violence or non-partner sexual violence in their lifetime. Most of this violence is intimate partner violence. Worldwide, almost one-third or 27% of women aged 15 to 49 have been in a relationship that report that they have been subjected to some form of physical and or sexual violence by their intimate partner. So violence can negatively affect women's physical, mental, sexual, and reproductive health and may also increase their risk of acquiring HIV in some settings. Violence against women is preventable. The health sector has an important role to play to provide comprehensive health care to women subjected to violence and an entry point for referring women to other support services that they may need. The United Nations defines violence against women as any act of gender-based violence that results in or is likely a result in physical, sexual or mental harm or suffering to women, including threats of acts such as coercion, arbitrary deprivation of liberty, whether occurring in public or in their private life. Intimate partner violence refers to behavior by an intimate partner or ex-partner that causes physical, sexual, or psychological harm, including physical aggression, sexual cohesion, physiological abuse, and controlling behaviors. Oh, psychological abuse, I'm sorry. (laughs) 
So as um, Melissa mentioned before, one in three women or 30% of the women have been subjected to physical or sexual violence by an intimate partner or non-partner sexual violence or both. Over a quarter of women aged 15 to 49 who have been in a relationship have been subjected to physical and or sexual violence by their intimate partner at least once in their lifetime since the age of 15. The prevalence estimates a lifetime intimate partner violence range between 20% in the Western Pacific, 22% in high income countries and Europe, and 25% in the WHO, the WHO regions in the Americas to 33% and in Africa 31% and Eastern Mediterranean regions 33%. Globally, as many as 38% of all murders of women are committed by intimate partners in addition to intimate partner violence. Lockdowns during COVID-19 pandemic and its social and economic impacts have increased the exposure of women to abusive partners, known risk factors while limiting their access to services. In the U.S., our statistics are that three women are murdered every day by an intimate partner. I didn't even realize that that number was that high. When that I is... was doing the research for this episode, I was just like three people every single day. That's three women every day. That's that's atrocious. According to the National Center on Injury uh, Prevention and Control, women experience about 4.8 million intimate partner-related physical assaults and rapes every year. Wow. And uh, before I go on, I'm just thinking in my mind, like, what does that translate? If three women are, ma are murdered every day. 1,057 women a year. How many of those women are in your chair? Yeah. In your day, how many of those women? And, and they're so good at hiding it because they probably think it's their fault. God. Approximately one in 10 women, just under 10%, and one in 43 men, just under 2%, have experienced stalking by an intimate partner in their lifetime. Approximately one in two women, 47%, and one in two men, 47%, have experienced psychological aggression by an intimate partner in their lifetime. Which means... Approximately Sorry, said so that means every single day you're seeing one of those people in your chair. When you're looking at numbers like that, every single day you're seeing someone that's experiencing that. So if we just make some small changes on our medical intake form, and I'm not saying to write, are you a, a victim of domestic violence, but ask them what their stress level is. Mm. And maybe that's the first place where they can say it's high and feel safe enough to say it's high. And again, we say this time and time again, you don't have to be the expert, but you could be the person, you could be the conduit to the referral that changes someone's life. You know, we should have a list of maybe local psychologists or, or free resources for people that we can then hand over to them so they can get help. Yeah. God, our job is so fucking huge, but in such a positive way, like we're all about prevention. I encourage you all to take that to the highest level that you possibly can in your operatory. The sky is the freaking limit. Approximately one in three women, 39%, and one in two men, 41%, have experienced coercive control by an intimate partner in their life. Nearly half of all female homicide victims are by a current or former male intimate partner. The most dangerous time for a victim of domestic violence is when she leaves the relationship. Women in an abusive relationship are five times more likely to be killed if her abuser has access to a firearm. Hello, America. Domestic violence assault involving firearms are 12 times more likely to result in death than those involving other weapons or bodily force. 
17.9% of children of all ages have been exposed to physical intimate partner violence in their lifetime, about 13.6 million children. Approximately 3,500 to 4,000 children witness fatal family violence each year in the U.S. That's among, Yeah. And they probably, their little brains probably think somehow it's their fault or they have something to do with it. Among high school students who dated, 21% of females and 10% of males experienced physical and or sexual dating violence. According to the National Network to End Domestic Violence, domestic violence is the leading cause of homelessness for women and children. Over 90% of homeless women have experienced severe physical or sexual violence at some point in their lives, and 63% have been victims of intimate partner violence as adults. Over 80% of survivors entering shelters identified finding houses, housing I can afford as a need second only to safety for myself. We do not have the resources for people that yep. they need in place. Up to 10 to 20% of children in the United States witness abuse of a parent or caregiver annually. As a result, they are more likely to experience neglect or abuse, less likely to succeed at school, have poor problem-solving skills, subject to higher incidence of emotional and behavioral problems, and more likely to tolerate violence in their adult relationships. Complicating this already bleak picture, parental psychopathology and in the wake of domestic violence can further compromise the quality of parenting and in turn increase the risk for the child's developing emotional and behavior difficulties if mental health care is not sought out. So that just, I mean, and I've personally seen that with my family that it perpetuates that cycle. It's it just, you need, yeah. you need help to make it stop. Yeah. So when we look at domestic violence in Australia, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics in the 2016 Personal Safety Survey, 2.2 million Australians have experienced physical and or sexual violence from a partner, and 3.6 million of Australians have experienced emotional abuse from a partner. About 2.2 million Australians have experienced sexual violence since the age of 15. One in six women have experienced physical or sexual violence by a current partner, while for men it's only one in 16. 75% of victims of domestic violence reported the perpetrator as male, while 25% reported the perpetrator as female. Overall, one in five women and one in 20 women have experienced sexual violence, and on average, one woman a week and one man a month is killed by a current or former partner. Wow. Homelessness, homelessness and domestic violence in Australia. One in three people, 29%, or 82,000 people seeking assistance from homelessness services stated that domestic and family violence was the most common main reason identified for seeking help. 41% or 119,200 people seeking help from specialist homelessness services in 2019 to 2020 had experienced domestic and family violence. And that just made me huge think number. The, the, those are huge numbers. And then during the lockdown, you're trapped with yep. that person. The abuse probably just was so far worse. COVID has made domestic violence out of control around the world due to how women were trapped and no one was visiting them, no one was seeing them. Um, yeah, it's it's horrific. Many have experienced domestic and family violence in their childhood. One in six women and one in nine men experienced physical or sexual abuse before the age of 15. 
Of the adults who experienced current partner violence, 86.8% indicated their child saw or heard violence in the last 12 months. Approximately 2.5 million Australian adults experienced abuse during their childhood. The majority knew the perpetrator and experienced multiple incidents of abuse. Family violence is worse in Aboriginal communities. Indigenous people were 30 times, 32 times more likely to be hospitalized for family violence as non-Indigenous people. In 2017, the majority of indige Indigenous assault victims recorded by police were victims of family violence, ranging from 64% to 2,700 people in New South Wales to 74%, 3,900 in the Northern Territory. People with disability are more likely to experience physical and or sexual violence. Um, They're 1.8 times as likely to have experienced physical or sexual violence from a partner in the previous year when compared to people without disability. People with disability were 1.7 times as likely to have experienced sexual violence, including assault and threats since the age of 15. Just, just horrific. <sighs> so one of the other things that we're going to talk about today is coercive control. And this is something that can really start in the beginning and can be a, a very good red flag to identifying when someone is in danger. So not all domestic abuse is physical and there's often before it becomes physical. Coercive control is a type of domestic abuse that can be harder to identify than other types of abuse. It refers to a pattern of behaviors used by an abuser to control their partner and create an uneven power dynamic. Coercive control is a strategic pattern of behaviours designed to exploit, control, create dependency and dominate. The victim's everyday existence is micromanaged and their space for action as well as potential as human being is limited and controlled by the abuser. Examples of coercive control is isolating from friends and family. A controlling person or abuser may try to get their partner to reduce or cut contact with their support network. Keeping them away from family and friends can make the victim easier to control. The abuser may also try to prevent them from going to social events or being alone with their support network in case they talk about issues in the relationship while the abuser isn't around. The abuser may also prevent them from going to work or school. Monitoring activity is another way that coercive control can exist. This might involve wanting to know where the victim is or who they're with at all times, or calling and texting excessively when they're apart. It also includes reading emails, texts, and social media messages without the victim's permission. Extreme cases might involve placing cameras or recording devices in the victim's home or car, or tracking them with a GPS and spy software. This, may, this is also considered stalking and harassment. Restricting autonomy, if the abuser's main goal is to take the victim's freedom and independence away from them, they might do this by removing or restricting the victim's access to a vehicle or public transportation, hiding their devices or changing passwords on their devices and online accounts. Controlling their body is another example. It's common for a controlling partner to not only want to control how their victim behaves, but how they look. They might dictate what the victim can and can't wear, what they eat and drink, how they groom and present themselves and how often how they even exercise. No. Degradation. Degradation. I cannot speak today. I'm sorry. The abuser will aim to damage the victim's self-esteem in order to gain control over the, and prevent them from leaving the relationship. Abusers might call their victims names, insult them, consistently criticize, constantly criticize how they do things, bully and belittle them. They might also put them down in front of others, but pass it off as a joke. 
over time, even small jabs will eat away at the victim's self-worth. It's like and this is where people really need to stand up. And this is something I feel really passionate about. This happens all the time. And this is, they're either experiencing physical abuse or they're experiencing this mental abuse. And we need men to stand up and say to their mates, hey, buddy, it's not okay to talk to her like that. Yeah. And we need women to stand up and say to our friends, it's not okay for him to speak to you like that. Yeah. And we need to call out that kind of behaviour because when we're silent in front of the victim, the victim then believes that everybody who is being silent in that room agrees with what that person is saying. Where then that silence is saying, I agree, and then that person feels like everybody's saying it once and they're less likely to get away. So that silence can be so powerful and we have to make sure we use our voices wherever we can to make sure we're not silent and we don't perpetuate that abuse through our silence. And usually when you, you know, you feel that you have that like ping in your body, like, oh, this, this isn't right. It just doesn't feel good if you're witnessing something like that. And if you're the first person to say, hey, you know what? That really wasn't nice. Somebody's going to chime in and get your back because you weren't the only person that felt that. And you know what else? It might be that there's no violence there, but that person that's doing that doesn't even understand what they're doing with that behavior. So maybe you can help that person make change. Maybe you can be the positive difference to that person with them thinking, because then they can reflect and go, actually, I need to change the way I communicate and, and talk. So it can work in two different ways. Yeah, and that person probably had it done to them throughout their lifetime from someone maybe that they trusted, a family member, friend, yeah. whatever. And and it just perpetuates this cycle of bullshit, yeah. for lack and of any other right. term. Counseling for children um, of domestic abuse is so important for them to understand what healthy communication is and what isn't healthy. Um, financial control is another form of abuse. Um Coercive control can involve financial abuse where the abuser withholds or limits access to money. They might provide the victim with an allowance and or control how much money can be spent. Limiting the victim's access to money can make it even harder for them to leave the relationship as they may feel financially dependent on the abuser. This is especially common when children are involved. And this is a big reason why a lot of women don't leave uh, relationships because they have no access to money because they're scared about how they're going to feed their children, how they're going to put a roof out of, over their head. And that's something that is a huge, huge problem is, fi- is financial abuse. Mm-hmm. And I, I, the advice I always gave my daughter and I, and I give to every woman, you know, don't let go of your independence so much that you have to be a hundred percent reliable, relying on someone always have, you know, some kind of independence there because it's really, really important. Yeah, it's it's funny that you say that. That was one of the things growing up my mom always said to me too is that, you know, it's nice to be in a relationship, but you need to know that you could take care of yourself no matter what. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm trying to raise a young woman to do the same and, and take care of you first and foremost. Yeah. Uh, another form of abuse is jealousy and possessiveness. A little jealousy in a relationship isn't uncommon, but in an abusive relationship, the abuser might consistently accuse the victim of cheating to control them. This can make the victim feel guilty about spending time away from them or simply make them avoid going to social events because they don't want to deal with the accusations. Controlling partners often act jealous and possessive to reduce the victim's contact with their outside world. 
Threats and intimidation is another form. They might involve threats to the victim's own safety or that of their children, pets, property, friends, or family. The abuser will use these threats or intimidations to scare the victim into doing what the abuser wants. And something that you often hear people say is, why did she stay? Why didn't she leave? But you don't know 100% what's happening behind those closed doors. You don't know if that person's been told, if you leave, I'm going to hurt the kids, or if you leave, I'm going to hurt your parents or your friends. And so sometimes that person's staying because they're thinking about everybody else's safety but their own. Right, and they're, they're protecting their loved ones. Yeah. What can we do? Domestic violence has been identified as a major contributor to the global burden of ill health in terms of female morbidity and mortality, leading to psychological trauma and depression, injuries, sexually transmitted diseases, suicide, and murder. The health-related implications of physical and psychological component of domestic violence are not limited to general health, but also may impact dental health. The physiological consequences of depression may lead to poor dental health due to xerostomia, carcinogenic diet, and impaired immune functioning contributing to oral infection. Remember, we always talk here about what stress does to the body as well. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. It's enormous. Yeah. The potential fallout from stress and anxiety can lead to diseases like mouth sores, including canker sores, cold sores, clenching of teeth, teeth grinding, periodontal disease, and dental caries. It can also affect oral health behavior and personality of in individual. Dental neglect and the ability to seek and follow through with treatment necessary to ensure a level of oral health essential for adequate function and freedom from pain and infection is common in battered women. It is found that these abusive partners control their access to health care. And like we have to remember too that um, a lot of these women would be in quite a deep state of depression during the abuse as well. So getting up and brushing their teeth may be something that's really, really hard to do. Mm -hmm. um, so we need to be really, and we've talked about this a lot when we um, have patients that are coming in and Melissa and I have said this on many episodes, don't judge, try and be as understanding as you can. And it is our job to be that cheerleader on the side. We just don't know what's happening behind the smile of someone and I'll give you a um an example of this when we found out that um my daughter had died I was in a hotel room by myself at two o'clock in the morning with my son when I got the phone call and um I didn't go back to sleep I stayed awake all night and in the morning I decided that I wouldn't tell him what had happened that I would put him on the plane and get him home after the three-hour drive and tell him in the safety of the house so that morning I took myself to the airport and I smiled at the lady when we checked in and I bought him some Lego at the shop to try and distract him and I smiled at the lady as I got on the plane and said thank you for taking me to the seat and I thanked her for my glass of water and I kept all the tears inside because I had to make sure this eight-year-old sitting next to me felt safe and didn't and didn't suspect what was going on. And he always expects his mum to be smiling. So I had to I had to pull that smile off. Meanwhile, inside, I'd never felt more broken in my life. And it made me realise when I was sitting on that plane and I was looking out the window while my son was playing his Nintendo, that you actually don't know what's happening in someone's life. And sometimes they can be smiling really bright and their whole world has just fallen apart. 
and so just try and be kind I think that's the biggest thing is be kind to everyone you meet because they won't always show you how, how much they're hurting or how much the world is falling apart and I'm someone that's a pretty stoic person on the outside and doesn't give much away but you, you can be having the worst day of your whole entire life and so that patient that walks in even with a smile on their face you don't know what's happening behind closed doors you don't know what's happening in their life and that's what one thing I've learned as a more mature practitioner is that when the, I do get those patients that are having the bad day, I understand there's usually something going on. It has nothing to do with me and they just need my kindness. Yeah. 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 I couldn't agree more because we just, we look at it like this person is just a pain in my ass right now. Right. Like, I'm going to be real. I'm going to be real. When you see that name on the schedule and you're like, this person is such a pain in my ass every time they come in. They make my job that much harder. But also, too, as a more mature practitioner, I have learned that there is a reason behind it. And I'm not telling you to pry in someone's life. Just be nice. Yeah. Just freaking be nice. Put your shit aside for 60 minutes. And just be nice to that person. Maybe you're the only person in the whole world that is kind to them. Yeah. Exactly. So the physical component of domestic violence can be related to the injuries of head and neck region, including ligature marks, scratches, abrasions, and scrapes. Um, To the neck, the face, the eyes, mouth, swelling, and difficulty swallowing. It has been documented that 38.7% of domestic violence injuries are related to the head and neck region. Dental treatment can be particularly uncomfortable for victims of abuse due to the feelings of loss of control on assessing the influence of domestic violence on oral health status of the subject's significant impact was found on periodontal status, intraoral injuries, fractures of teeth, oral health behavior. In a study by Walker and others, women with a history of trauma reported greater dental fear, and women with high dental fear scores were nearly twice as likely to have been victims of multiple assaults. So, Again, we would encourage you to realize that people in your chair, probably at least one a day out of your schedule, at a minimum, it could be more, but assume that one person out of your schedule every day is a victim of domestic violence. Consent matters. Let your patients feel in control. I was teaching um, a couple of weeks ago, actually, uh, my first time back teaching since everything had happened. And... um. I was talking about consent with oral hygiene instructions. I was saying you should always ask consent to give them because consent is really important. And I'm very aware that some patients are very anxious in the chair and by giving consent, it gives them power and makes them feel less out of control. And a participant in my course put up her hand and said, I've never asked for consent in my life to give instructions. And I've never had anyone complain. I think this is ridiculous. Well, just because no one's complained to your face doesn't mean they're not upset or complaining internally. Um, right. And consent does matter. And when you have an anxious patient, there's something usually else tied into it. Now, there is def- there's all different types of anxious patients. And there's definitely dental fear patients because they've had a poor dental experience. 
And they're usually older patients who actually went through a pretty horrific time of dentistry, let's be honest. The yeah. pedal drill and old school dentistry was just awful. Like there's there's no way to sugarcoat it. And I'm usually quite honest with those patients. You had shitty dentistry. I'm sorry. That was the best we could do at the time. You didn't have yeah. a shitty person. You just had what dentistry was. But we've come a long way and we really want to help you. But there, that's one section of anxious patients. Some patients, it's about losing control. Other patients, it's because they've had abuse. And this is similar. And I went to an amazing lecture by an ex-dental therapist who's now a psychologist. Um, she works at Monash University now. And I went to a lecture with her early in my career and she honestly changed me as a clinician because like Melissa said, we all have that pain in the ass patient where we eye rolled. I eye rolled all day. My eyes only fell out of my head. And um, <laughs> I, I will admit that and I'm sorry. And I, you Same. Know, you know, do better as you say, Melissa. So I went to this lecture and she talked about sexual violence, especially molestation of children and women and rape and what's something that their abuser says to them every time don't worry it won't hurt oh, just and that's what we say and that's what we say don't just keep still it'll be over in a second mm. so i realized that the language we even use can be completely triggering so making someone feel in control making them know that they're the boss and that they get to consent to everything we do is super, super important because what we do know is the majority of patients are not going to disclose to you their history of violence and sexual abuse. They're going to keep it quiet out of, out of embarrassment, out of fear, out of not wanting to deal with the trauma because every time you have to talk about an event, that is letting that trauma out and maybe they don't trust you enough or feel comfortable enough or they maybe they love you and think you're the best clinician in the world but they don't have the emotional energy to give the information out there's many reasons why they won't tell you and it's complex but we need to remember that the type of language we use be careful and you know if you've got a super anxious patient it could be for multiple reasons be careful and consent matters whether they're anxious or not Consent is important in every single thing we do in our life. It matters and we have to take it seriously. 100%. And, you know, there's a really way, a really easy way that you could restructure just your oral hygiene instructions for that. So if you have, and this is what we're taught in school, tell, show, do, right? So start out. You don't even have to do tell, show, do in that order. Here you go. Show me how you do this. Yeah. Do you mind showing me? and let them show you. And then it's the easy way. It's just a change on a few words. May I show a way, you a way that you could be more effective at what you're doing? Well, going back to um, Melissa's and my favorite tool in the dental practice, disclosing solution. Yeah. Um, <laughs> patient. So then they often say to me, how do I change this? And then I just yeah. follow it up with, is it okay if I show you? Yep. Yep. It don't, you don't have to be like, but do you consent to oral hygiene instructions? Like, right. I mean, like, come on. Like, you have to be real. That. You don't have to, like, be like, I yeah. physically would like your consent. But just saying things like, is it okay if I show you this? That is called right. consent. Right. That right. is, And then the patient says, yes, that is consent. 
right. you know, like we, when the patient lays back and they're nervous, say things like, is it okay if I have a look now? Right. Let that patient consent and feel really in control. Something that I do with my patients who are super anxious is I say to them, remember, whenever you put your hand up, I'm going to stop no matter what. And then I say to them, raise your hand and I'll show you. And when someone raises their hand, I actually raise my hands as well and I push my chair back and I give the patient distance to make them feel really safe. I've moved away. They can see where my hands are. So I'm not sneakily doing something or something like that. And that's something that I feel very passionate about with kids, that we don't trick yeah. them, that yeah. we let them feel in control and we don't try and take that consent away from them as well because I think consent matters and no matter what age you are. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Because of that. Yeah. Yeah. Because what are you teaching them by just forcing them through something? You know, it's just not, Yeah, it, it, it's just perpetuating a cycle of negative tra traumatic emotions around taking care of themselves, you know, like that's, that's going to impact, that can impact them in such a bigger way. And we have to think more bigger picture because I'm being cliche because I'm repeating myself, but we, we know so much more now. So yeah. we have to take that knowledge and actually it's one thing to know something, but it's another thing to take action. Like yeah. if you know it, but you choose not to do anything with it because like, I've never done that before. Why would I do that? Don't be so sterile and clinical about it either. Be realistic. Like I, I love to joke in my operatory. So like, I'll say the same thing to my patient. Like, Hey, you know what? You're in control. This is your appointment, not mine. I'm here to serve you. If anything's uncomfortable, you raise your hand, but just do me a favor, raise the left, raise the left one. So you don't knock me out with your right one. Yeah. And they just start laughing, you know, like, Silly little things like that, you know, it, it's just lightening the vibration of the room, making them feel in control, making them feel happy. And again, you don't know their story. And that could be the first time they feel comfortable or smile and laugh without pressure on them. You know, you have no idea. You have no idea what someone's going through. So, yeah. So it's healthy crime. As health Sorry. professionals, we can play a vital role in providing victims with the necessary treatment and referral. They should be dealt sensitively, even when oral health care is being provided, which can help them raising their morale. The health sector must work with all other sectors, including education, legal, judicial, and social services to significantly improve the health of victims. As the epidemic of violence is highly underreported, dental professionals being primary healthcare providers have an obligation to intervene. Yes. Changes at the national educational, public health and private practice levels of dentistry are needed to make the identification of domestic violence and intervention a priority. The opportunity for dental professionals to help victims gain access to support and referral services and to provide adequate treatment to them so as to make a positive difference in their lives must not be overlooked. I think what you could do for your area is have a little list of services for you. Now, this yeah. is a global podcast, so Melissa and I can't list off every single one of them, but I am going to put a couple of links into the show links. But know a couple of domestic violence services in your area that's appropriate for them. Or like in Australia, we have a phone number called 1-800-RESPECT, which anyone across the, the country can ring. Um, you know, But know some services that you can refer to. So if someone does divulge to you that they are, then you can... If it is a child, you have a mandatory reporting obligation in Australia, and I imagine you have the same everywhere else in the world. You know, 
I don't know this. I would assume so. Um, I don't know the statistic or, or the requirements for licenses outside of the states that I am licensed in, because again, we don't have a national license um, in America. But I do know that um, it is a, a requirement for my New York license that we must yeah. take a. You know, it, it's framed as child abuse, but it should just be abuse. Yeah, a recognizing abuse. Um, I have something else I wanted to kind of add to this discussion before we move on to the next bit as well. If you're a man and you're listening today, you have the privilege and the ability to opt out of the conversation about domestic violence because you're very rarely the victim of it. Um, and it's with your silence, though, you say so much. So to be a true ally to women... Um, you need to work to engage with others and join this fight for our lives because women around the world, we are fighting for the right to live. We are fighting for the right for our kids and we need you. So we're standing up as women and we're demanding action. We're asking you, we're begging you to help. Male silence is killing us and we need you to stand up against gender violence and physical violence to us. Male silence is not supportive. Male silence is violence. Male silence is not neutral ground. Please don't stay silent when the lives of your mothers and your daughters and your sisters and your family and your friends depend on it. There is, and I say this to my kids all the time, there is no fence sitting in life. You are either fighting against it or you are fighting for it. And they're the only two options you have in life. You can't be neutral. And so I am begging the men that are listening to join this fight with us because your silence is so loud and it says so much. And we need you to help us teach little boys to respect us. And the, one of the most violent things that happens in society is the casual gender discrimination that we experience when things like, you should, I hear people say this to my son, cut your hair, you look like a girl. Why is it an insult to look like me? Yeah. It's those little things that you think are nothing that are freaking huge. They are so huge because every time you insult someone with looking like me, every time you say you don't want to look like that or you throw like a girl or you run like a girl or you drive like a girl or you park like a girl, People can laugh that off, but what you're setting is a standard of a girl is below you and she is lower yeah. in society. When you hear your mates say degrading jokes and say degrading things as girls walk past and you think, oh, that wasn't nice, but I don't want to rock the boat. They didn't hear you say you didn't like that. They heard you say nothing, so they think you agree. So your silence is agreeance in that situation. We need you to stand up and fight for us so bad. We need women to call it out when they hear it as well. We all have right. to work together. If you hear something and it's not right, say something because it's really important because we're not going to make a meaningful change in domestic violence until we improve gender equality. And to improve gender equality, there are, we need to be equal and we're not going to get there until we're treated equally. I don't want to be better than any man. I just want to be treated the same way. Yeah. I don't believe women are better than men and I don't believe men are better than women. I think we're equal. But unfortunately, through 
hundreds and thousands of years of women not being equal, we're still fighting for the right to live. And women are being murdered across the globe in alarming numbers. And I don't want another mum to feel like I did. I don't want anyone else to feel that pain. So I want every other's kid to be safe. And I really feel passionate about that. I don't want anyone else to feel this. And I just, I'm begging you to help us. I'm really, really begging you to help us, please. Oh, Tabitha, you are incredible. This episode is dedicated, dedicated in loving memory of my daughter, Mackenzie. May her memory be a blessing to all who know her and may the tragedy in which she left us help make a positive change for other women. If you know someone who is experiencing any form of domestic violence, there is help out there. So please reach out. We're going to place links into our show notes for Canada, US, the UK, New Zealand, and Australia. If today's episode was a cause of trauma for you, please reach out to a lifeline or any other similar services in your area. I'd like to end today's episode a little bit differently as well. At Mackenzie's service, um, it was pretty heartbreaking, to be honest, but we ended the service with a dance floor and we played her very favourite song in the world and we had everybody dance. Well, I spoke to that band this week, the Dregs, and they've given us permission to play that song as the outgoing music for today's episode. So I'm going to ask you as a personal favour to me that you turn this up as loud as you can and you sing along and you dance in your kitchen or you dance in your car or wherever you listen and you do that as a dedication to Mackenzie. So we thank you very much for joining us for this special episode and for having me back. Promise I won't cry at all the future episodes. <laughs> I <laughs> cannot make that promise. <laughs> um, I appreciate all the love and support that's been um, given to me during this time. And um, many of you have made an unbearable situation survivable. And I, I thank special people like Melissa and my other friends for this, for the daily encouragement that they send me. And um, for everyone that's out, reached out and the love that they've shown me, um, it is very, very appreciative. Sometimes you only get a thank you back because it's, it's hard. and um, But it is very, very appreciative. So turn it up really loud for us and sing as loud as you can. And that will be a really, really special gift for me. So thank you.